Hello and welcome to Sideload, the technology podcast from Edelman London. I'm Chris Byrne. And I'm Archie Patch and today we're talking football. Although it seems like it never went away, the Premier League is back next week and we're asking the question that has been and definitely will be debated up and down the country. Is technology improving the game or is it overcomplicating a sport cherished worldwide for its simplicity? That's right, we'll be diving into the video assess- assistant referee, the VAR debate, looking at how teams are using data to gain a competitive edge, and discussing some of the future technologies entering the world of football. Our guest today may sound familiar if you listen to the Totally Football Show. We'll be chatting to Duncan Alexander, author and chief data editor for sports analytics firm OptiSport, and Tom Williams, football writer and broadcaster, to get some answer. As Opta Joe, Duncan is a football commentator and pundit who live tweets during football matches bringing a humorous edge to the statistics. He has had two books published, Opta Joe's Football Yearbook and Outside the Box, a statistical journey through the history of football. He's also written for the BBC, the Premier League, FA, The Guardian, Daily Mirror and Sky Sports. Tom's writing has been published by websites and publications including Bleacher Report, The Blizzard, The Guardian, The Independent, 442, ESPN, Eurosport and Betfair. With 10 years reporting on top-level football around the world, Tom has also released a book called Do You Speak Football? A look at the language used across the world to bring colour to the world's greatest game. Thanks both for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Well, let's jump straight into it. Um, So after some pretty questionable trials over the last year or so, uh, some interesting decisions at the the Women's World Cup, VAR's going to be introduced to the Premier League. So are we feeling optimistic, Tom? I, I... My attitude towards VAR has gone through so many different phases. I was staunchly against it to begin with, um, and and was just worried that it would it would kill that visceral aspect of the game that is the release of a goal being scored that's so important to, to football. Um, and then having been really worried that last year's Men's World Cup would be ruined by VAR, I was actually sort of reassured that. It generally passed off quite well, but then since then, um, and I think we saw this at the Women's World Cup, um, it, it seems to become more contentious again. And I think it is probably worth saying that the issue with VAR is not with the technology itself, which is generally pretty foolproof. And I mean, there have been instances where there, you know, for whatever reason, the VAR hasn't hasn't worked at a, at a certain moment in the game, but. The technology itself works. I think. I think the issues with VAR are to do with its implementation. And my hope is that in time we will get to a point with VAR where um, it's not being overused, where it's being used perhaps a little bit less than we've seen it being used over the last couple of years. Um, and that, in much the same way that cricket and tennis and rugby have managed to use technology, um, you know, similar sort of technology and embrace it and, and make it part of the fabric of the sport, that, that football will get there as well. But we're just, we're not quite there yet. Yeah, it's a strange one in that it's kind of sold as this new thing of objectivity within the game and that it's going to solve any kind of contentious issues. But as we've seen already, it can vary quite a lot depending on the tournament, depending on where it is. You know, some of the Copa America VR looked a little bit, you know, different, shall we say. Um, I mean, we, I think it was quite interesting that the Premier League actually waited. It's the last major competition to bring it in. You know, all the other European leagues have had it. Um, and we've actually tracked that last season. And it's actually quite interesting if you look at the numbers in the sense that you can kind of almost see the culture of leagues within the VAR decisions. So uh, if we look at penalty checks last year in Italy, France, Spain and Germany, it went Italy 77, France 62, Spain 50, uh, 
52, and then Germany 47, and then goal checks, Italy 66, Spain 62, France 53, Germany 46. So there we've got Italy top of both and Germany bottom of both, which kind of fits into what you might think of how people see referees and officiating in those countries. So um, I think it's going to be quite interesting when it comes into the Premier League to see how it is, uh, you know, how it's taken on board. And I think the Premier League have already kind of gone out of their way to, to head that off a little bit by saying we're not going to, we're going to encourage refs not to use it too much, which again is a bit of a weird one, either they need to use it or they don't. Hmm. Um, it's a pretty expensive technology if they don't use it. Well, exactly. And, and you know, they've said they're going to try and put uh, contentious decisions on the big screen so that fans can see what the what the refs are looking at, which is goes against what you know, we all know that historically they haven't been able to show replays or stuff like that in grounds. Um, one little bit I quite like on that is that there's only two Premier League grounds that don't have a big screen, and that's Anfield and Old Trafford, which is quite nice oh. to think about the size yeah, of those yeah. clubs. Um, so yeah, we'll see how it how it goes on. But I think um, being that the Premier League is such a kind of worldwide watch league, I think if it's going to work, I think the way the Premier League approaches it might be the way that then other leagues kind of follow follow suit. I think those stats are really interesting. Is there a way we can ext extrapolate those findings of how other countries are doing it to come up with a kind of best practice, a recipe of um, where we should be focusing efforts with VAR? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, in Italy we saw 41 goals uh, that were given were overruled by VAR after checking, and the kind of reverse in Spain where 23 goals weren't given in, during the game, but then they checked it on VAR and they were given. So. Um, as I said, I think next year it will be a little bit experimental. Um, it's not the only rule change that's coming in as well. I mean, these aren't really technology ones, but you've obviously got the new goal kick rule, mm. um, a few others as well. So I think a bit like 92 when the back pass rule came in, I think this next season will be quite interesting. And I think we'll see the first couple of months some some different stuff. You know, I've seen a couple of pre-season videos with teams, you know, new tactics for playing out from the back with some of the new rules. So, you know, and that in itself could then lead to some odd attacks that need to go to VAR. So, yeah, it's interesting. I yeah, think, I think people also sometimes confuse um, the changes to the handball rule with mm. VAR. Mm. So you get these penalties that are awarded for handball, and it's oh VAR. You know, why is why is VAR ruining things? It's yeah. actually okay. It, it might be a VAR-assisted decision, but what's changed is the guidance given to referees about what is handball and what isn't handball, and, and, and VAR only <coughs> only makes it easier for referees to make those decisions. So that's yeah, that's a stick that gets used to beat um, uh, VAR that, that that perhaps shouldn't be. Um, but yeah, you know, as as Duncan says, I mean, it it, it is going to feel it is going to feel very novel this season. VAR coming in and all the other rule changes, and it, it's probably going to take a few months before we have any idea of, of how successfully it's been implemented and, and what needs to be what needs to be changed and, and, and what's working. I think you've I think you both touched on it. Um, bringing the fans in in the stadiums, I think, is going to be key one way or the other. Um, we've seen that in in rugby and, and cricket, especially in this last World Cup. I think they've nailed the uh, video assistant referees and in those sports. Tom, we were chatting before, I mentioned I'm a United fan. Um, in 99, in the uh, Champions League final, if we had VAR then, I don't think um, we'd have kept up that momentum. I think it would have given, um, after the first goal, it would have given uh, Bayern Munich some respite uh, and we wouldn't have capitalised on that momentum we had. Is VAR going to be killing um, teams' momentum, giving teams a bit of time to, to reset? I mean, potentially. I mean, I think my my biggest objection to VAR, as I said before, is just is the fact that when a goal goes in now, 
there's now that there's that little acorn of doubt about whether or not it is a goal. And I think mm. we're we're becoming more VAR literate as we get used to the technology being used. So now, I think back to the World Cup, uh, the Men's World Cup last summer, when a goal was scored and the referee went to check it on the video replay screen, you thought, oh, he's got to have a look at VAR. I wonder what this could mean. Because it was new and it was mysterious. Whereas now, you know that if the referee, if a goal's been scored and the referee wants to go and have a look at it, he's almost certainly going to rule it out. Because in order for him to be encouraged to, to make that check, the, the, the VAR, the video assistant referee, needs to be pretty sure himself that there's something wrong with the goal. Yeah, and I think we... One where area where it could be improved is maybe if we could hear what the VAR officials are saying to the referee, mm, that even yeah. if it was by text or something. But because I mean, a lot of the controversy at the uh, Copper America was because there were rumours of what was said, what the ref didn't hear. Mm. Um, you know, if we saw in the Premier League, you know, Mike Dean getting told, Mike, we think that was whatever, and then it kind of. I mean, miking at Mike Dean yeah. just in the first place. Isn't I mean, that should have been done years ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 very keen for it. Um, there's, a, there's a great video of um, the, the name evades me, but um, uh, an Australian referee who came to the championship. He was recorded working with all of his team in the la his last game in Australia, um, and being able to see all of that communication, you can really um, understand the judgment. Uh, and different pers uh, perspectives going into these, these yeah, calls, so I think it would make a big difference. There was a famous example in the 80s when um, they mic'd up, uh, who was it? It's David Ellery. David Ellery, yeah. that's right, again, Millwall, Arsenal. They told the Millwall players, but they hadn't told the Arsenal <laughs> yeah. players, who Tony Adams then proceeded to <laughs> harangue him and ended up calling him a cheat, which for refs, that's, that's the big no-no. Mm. So, um, yeah, let's you, bring it back. Do you not think there's something slightly odd about 60,000 people watching 22 people watch one person go and watch one screen? <laughs> yeah, it's like a Russian doll. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, so we touched on it briefly before, but do you not think that having VAR, like you said, Tom, players are going to be looking around, wondering if a check's going to take place? Do you not think it's going to take some of the characters out of the game? So someone like Sergio Ramos, for example, known for potentially his antics off the ball. Do you not think that he's going to sort of have to tailor his game massively um, with regards to these new rules coming in? I think it might actually ramp up some of that behaviour. It was, um, I'm trying to think which game it was last season, I think it was the Juve Atletico Madrid um, Champions League tie. And I forget whether it was, I think it was Juve. And I noticed that when they were defending at set pieces and, and corners, um, their defenders were looking for opportunities to go down in the box, mm. knowing that if it went to VAR and VAR sees any sort of like hint of contact, they're going to err on the side of caution and rule it out. So I, I think, I think it will, I think it will probably um, result in a reduction in the number of sort of niggly penalty area fouls that you often see shirt pulling and, and all and all the rest of it. But I think in terms of sort of skullduggery. Um, and, and and simulation. I think there could. I think there's still a lot of scope yeah. for the, uh, the, you know, the whole thing to be manipulated. A the bit. Reverse simulation. So defenders and anti-simulation. Hunter. Yeah. Well, we saw it in the World Cup last year, the Men's World Cup, where um, by the end of the group stage, we pretty much set a new record for penalties awarded, mm. and most of, a lot of those were because of you know defenders tugging people, mm. and it was suddenly like. But by the time we got to the knockout stage everyone realised oh we can't do that anymore there's someone watching us so they quickly learn so it's, well, we might see that in the first few weeks of the Premier League where you know they, there's a spate of decisions for, for a certain type of incident and then that basically just disappears by September I think one thing it's, it's worth pointing out when we make the comparison with, with cricket and tennis and rugby is that 
perhaps to a slightly lesser extent with rugby, but certainly with, with cricket and tennis, the video technology is only ever used to, descri- to decide things that have a clear black and white outcome. Mm. And the difficulty with football is that so much of it comes down to the referee's interpretation of things. And as a consequence, and we've seen this in, in the way that VAR has been used since its introduction already, you see a decision and then and you, know, you go back to the TV studio and the pundits can't agree and like half the fans on Twitter can't agree and you know I, th- I think we will in time become more accustomed to VAR and more accepting of it but we're never going to get to a point where VAR is as you know universally um, kind of accepted as it is in those other sports because it is it's adjudicating on things that are, are matters of interpretation yeah I mean we saw that with goal line technology you know there was obviously Jonathan Pierce got briefly confused <laughs> during the 2014 World Cup but other than that it's pretty black and white isn't it it's, did it cross the line or did it not and everyone just kind of accepts it but my my issue with VAR as just reminded me actually Tom is not the thing on the pitch so much as that if, if pundits then spend the entirety of half time mm, talking mm, about mm, one decision mm, and nothing about the rest of the game yeah. it's a bit self-defeating in that sense and also yeah. that's that's come out quite a lot I mean poor old Peter Walton mm. BT Sports in-house referee and there were times last season during the Champions League where you felt like all the pundits were ganging up on it <laughs> because they didn't understand the rules they didn't understand the modern interpretation of the rules and because he was the only man in the studio defending them, yeah. he ends up being this sort of like, you know, VAR apologist. And it's like, well, and this is another important point. People need to understand the rules better mm. and people need to be more more conscious of, of, of what the, the VAR can and can't do. And I think this is a problem that footballers have, particularly in this country, but just it's just something in the game that pundits tend not to be as well informed on the rules as, as, as they need to be and an awful lot of these VAR controversies um, actually just stem from a, a misunderstanding of the rules of the game and you, they follow this sort of typical pattern, something happens in a game the VAR intervenes the ref changes his decision and it's correct, the pundits in the studio disagree, argue about it, the next thing you've got an endless slew of stories BT Sport pundits rage over VAR confusion it's like well hang on there wasn't the only confusion was on that punditry sofa the officials got it right the players clearly you know were told why it had been done but then this narrative takes hold the offside is classic you know there's this thing that clear daylight which you know (laughs) never existed before and if you're offside you're offside and you know, they'll kind of base it on, oh, the team they wanted to win, if, if it was a marginal decision, it's like, well, you've got to give them the benefit of the doubt. But when it's the other way around, they're like, yeah, VR's nailed it there. It's like, come on. Um, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Duncan, you, when you mentioned goal line technology. I think it, because it's so frictionless, it's so instant, um, which is what we all kind of want technology to, to be in so many different aspects of our lives. It's there to make li- uh, our lives better, quicker, um, more efficient, just easier in general. And I, from my perspective, VAR coming in is adding more friction. It's adding more controversy at the moment. Um, so yeah, I think we need once we can get rid of some of that friction, uh, we might be able to see a bit more uh, um, a warmer reception for, for VAR. Yeah, I mean, it's arguable last season the title. I mean, title was decided on Garland technology because obviously the, the Liverpool shot away at City that did it or crossed the line or not. But there was a little bit of like, oh, maybe the technology wasn't. But generally, people kind of accepted it at the time and at the end of the season. Hmm. Okay, we are talking technology in the beautiful game in this episode. 
Um, but first, let's take a quick listen back to the last episode of Sideload, where we discussed fake news, misinformation, and disinformation. First off, deepfakes are very much in their infancy. The problem with that is deepfakes are going to get really good. But right now, no one needs to worry too much. I might eat my words, but from a video perspective, there are very few that are brilliant because they're incredibly expensive and they take a lot of work. So the tech that we develop is equally quite expensive and it takes a lot of work to kind of get it into a state where you can spot definitively a really good deep fake. There just aren't many examples. Deep fake images are a problem. So doctoring a, uh, a photo or a front page, whatever it might be, is particularly, particularly difficult. You're listening to Sideload, and today we're talking football and the growing impact of technology on the game. We're still here with Duncan Alexander and Tom Williams, two genuine experts who are to analysis and insight what a Ronaldinho no-look pass is to football. Glorious. <laughs> Duncan, mm. can you tell us about your role with Opta? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis, and can you give us a bit of insight into the data collection process? Yep, so I work in what we call data editorial, so it kind of does what it says, really. I mean, we... we turn data into stories um, you know obviously the application of data's got many ways you can do it you know a lot of clubs will just take straight data feeds and do mysterious things with it behind mm -hmm. closed doors but um, generally when particularly when you're working with the media they don't have the time or wherewithal to go through the data and find the interesting stuff so we've always had teams that that will do that um, and yeah I mean a, a lot of my work is kind of uh, public facing I guess um, we do a lot of stuff with brands as well so brands you know want to use data to kind of amplify their message or tell their story um, uh, yeah so that's so that's me and that's where I come from in terms of the data collection um, it's kind of a f in some ways it's a fast-moving world um, in other senses we've kind of had a system that we've used for probably about 10 12 years now um, it's still largely collected by humans at the moment not because we haven't looked at kind of automation um, but because obviously accuracy is, is imperative mm. um, and at the moment that's still the most accurate way of doing it but there, I think at the moment the next couple of years we'll see a lot of a lot of change on that front. Um, just from a, a typical fans perspective it seems like football's some way behind um, maybe some of the US sports or even uh, sports over here like tennis, golf in terms of how teams and, and, um, and uh, sports professionals are using data. Um, is that fair to say, or is a lot more happening behind the scenes? Um, I think people probably are slightly out of date with football in a sense. I mean, there was the thing earlier this year when Bielsa, the Leeds manager, was you know Leeds were caught spying on Derby. Bielsa gave this long press conference a few days later, kind of revealing the the extent to how to their research into opponents and. It's among some journalists, there was quite a lot of surprise about that, about how in-depth leads were going. But pretty much, that you know, that's pretty normal for most teams, not only in the Premier League, Championship, but even lower. Um, so I think the issue with football is that it's, as we were talking about with VAR, it's a lot more of a fluid game. It's it's a lot harder to kind of in, invert, kind of solve than than baseball or or uh, basketball maybe. So um, yeah. So, so on that, are, are there any key moments where you think? Um data can be used more, it would add some real insight into, um, to give teams a competitive edge, for example. 
Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of tools that um, allow clubs to, to research both from recruitment and, and player performance. And I guess the big kind of the big news this summer is that we've um, Optus parent company Perform has merged with American company Stats, who kind of are the, the leading uh, data collectors around American sports. So we've kind of basically merged European expertise and American expertise, and they've got a lot of of products um, thing called uh, AutoStats, which basically looks at kind of um, you can kind of track the skeletal movements of players, which they've done a lot in basketball, um, uh, and it's really impressive. You know, you, so you're not just seeing what a player does now; you're seeing how he was shaping up when he did it. So you know, you, I think it's got a lot of applications in football going forward. You know, sort of players who can score <coughs> with a little back lift. Um, keepers who set themselves early. You know, we see there's a lot of data around someone like David De Gea who makes a lot of saves with his feet. Now, is he doing that because that's the best thing to do at the time, or is he doing that because you know he's slightly badly set? You know, we're, we're I think we're at the you know we're on the verge of some big kind of discoveries around how teams and players kind of set up. And so you mentioned uh, sort of clubs using that data. Do you think that with big clubs such as potentially Arsenal buying Stat DNA, do you think that with the resources they've got and the way they're using data, do you think that will leave smaller clubs behind in terms of how they compete? Yeah, well, I, I read a very interesting book recently by a guy called Christoph Biermann, a German football writer. Um, the book is called Football Hackers, and it's looking at how data analytics has infiltrated football. And, and, and one of the things that comes out of the book is that, to begin with, a lot of the people who were really driving data analytics were outsiders, people who came into the sport from the gambling industry or, or bloggers or people just had an interest in the game and, and, and were coming up with new ways of, of um, you know, mining data and presenting data. Um, and then what has happened over the years since is that, as, as Duncan was saying, yeah, every, every you know, major club now will have a, a pretty amply sized data analysis department um, the extent to which that that data is is used will vary from club to club but what's happening increasingly is that the biggest clubs are investing in data analysis in quite a big way and they are now leading the charge so a lot of the, the you know the real cutting edge developments within football data analysis have been driven by the likes of Barcelona Manchester City Liverpool um, and when the data analysis revolution, if you can call it that, when it first started, the exciting thing was that it, it felt very um, democratic. It was basically, there, there are guys out, you know, out there um, who've who've come up with these new metrics and these new ways of looking at football, and you can sort of hark back to the old uh, Moneyball example, you know, Billy Bean and, and the Oakland A's and all the rest of it, the, the, the baseball example, and and there was a hope that football might be able to do that, that there might be people out there outsiders who could come to a small underachieving club and we've seen it at places like Brentford, Midgetland in, in, in Denmark um, and, and give these clubs an advantage um, by using data in new and imaginative ways whereas I think what we're moving towards now is that it's because the importance of data analysis is now so well established it's become a priority for the big clubs and I think that as, as we move forward it, it's going to be less about the outsiders coming in and, and sort of turning things on their head and more about the big clubs leading the way and, and potentially making the gap between the haves and the have-nots even bigger. Yeah, I mean that's interesting because someone like Sam Allardyce for example who is sort of widely considered not to be the most progressive in terms of the football he plays was actually 
very much um, sort of keen to have that data analysis um, when he came into his mm. Bolton team. Do you think that managers in England are actually far more progressive than we than we sort of consider them to be right now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, Allardyce is the perfect example because he's someone who's seen as as this, I mean, and in many ways, he is a very old school British manager. But uh, you people sometimes make the mistake of thinking, well, he must therefore be a Luddite. And in actual fact, he's, he's one of the most sort of progressive football thinkers that, that we've had in terms of, you know, the adoption of, of data analysis and things like that. Yeah, but here's where I think <laughs> data is quite agnostic. You, you know, it's a bit like saying you, you've bought a load of food from the supermarket. You can kind of cook anything you want with it. Like, data doesn't say you have to play like this. Like, Allardyce used data to maybe scout players who were older but could still perform, you know, you're Ivan Campos, etc. You had Jorka Fs and, and people like that, but he still played a fairly robust style of football. Mm. Um, data can say, look, with this set of players, that might be the best way to go. Equally, data can say to Pep Guardiola, you know, you can do this, this and this. So it's not like there's one kind of data uh, vision of how football should be played. It's just an element that clubs can use and they're you know, each club will use it in a slightly different way. And as we've seen with Liverpool over the last couple of years, you know, when Brendan Rodgers got sacked, there were a few articles in the press saying, you know, the transfer committee is a disgrace, and you know, no manager should have to put up with this this sort of system. You know, you look at the players the transfer committee brought in. You know, um, Firmino, Mane, Salah, they've done all right, I think. So, you know, it's, it's Klopp didn't come in and go, I want to get rid of this system. He's worked with that system, and you know, arguably, well, not arguably, but has definitely improved it as well. So, um, and I think that's the key thing we, we've seen in data over the last decade is. It's all very well having it, but it's how how do you marry an analytics department and the football department? You know, the best ones, the ones where it works, are where they work together and they can talk to each other and they talk the same language. The ones where it tends to fail are the ones where the data and analytics team might have some great ideas, but if you can't transpose that to the manager, then it's never going to get anywhere. So we've heard some really interesting things about player cams stitched into shirts, virtual reality, um, potentially to improve the spectator experience. Um, what tech are you both excited to see entering the game? Um, I mean, from a fan perspective, uh, this isn't something that I've um, had any great experience of myself, but you, you do see these like virtual reality headsets being used, and there's an advert, I think, for, is it EE, maybe? Mm. And they're like one of their sort of you know deals, and, and there's, there's the bloke sitting on his sofa at home, and he puts on the headset, and he thinks he's at Wembley watching so the one where it's all about the FA Cup final and half the fans are Watford fans and half the fans are City fans yeah. but they've got to try and make it look like both of, like both sets have had a really nice day <laughs> even though Watford lost 6-0 um, so yeah that sort of thing experience you know sort of affecting the fan experience I think in terms of in terms of things that will impact on the game itself I suspect the next thing that we'll see from a technology perspective um, if we accept that VAR is now here and here to stay I think offsides will within the next few years um, become uh, judged by some sort of automated system because you can tell if a player is in an offside position um, just by looking at whether he's you know beyond the, the penultimate defender obviously you then to to determine whether or not he's offside that comes down to the referee's interpretation and then the interpretation of his assistance but the pure fact of being in an offside position and we see it now with VAR that you've got the lines on the pitch with you know the, the back of the defender's heel and like the you know the attacker's toe and is he offside or not so i imagine that within the next few years we'll get to a point where we will know 
instantly if a footballer's in an offside position and then it will come down to the referee and his assistants to determine if they are actually offside or not. Yeah, I mean you could even have connected pitches where, you know, the the attacking third might even change colour if a player's offside. You know, so fans watching the game could say, Well he you know, he is offside right now, he's offside and then would that change the way midfielders play because they're waiting for the, the pitch to change? But actually, that doesn't look quite a bad idea. But anyway, you know, <laughs> these things are, these things are all possible. I mean, from my point of view, um, now that we're together with stats, they've got some really really good stuff. I'm quite keen to see. You know, I think the big the big thing is the increase in computational power that we, we're going to see over the next kind of decade, and you know that allows we could get to a stage where managers will have technology where they could run scenarios you know 20,000 times during a game so they, you know they might be able to say you know I'm gonna bring on a sub you know I've got two options or three options um, if I bring on this what's the you know if I bring on him what's gonna happen versus him you know that things like that is within our grasp I think um, and that's gonna be really interesting and I think the the connectivity between that between the management between the players between the fans between the viewers is gonna become more kind of entwined and you know I'm sure a lot of people or some people will think that's you know in Berkham is not football but it is and I think it's gonna come I think there's another um, uh, potential development again going back to data analytics but one of the new metrics um, that uh, has sort of emerged in, in the last couple of years is something called expected possession value. This is super nerdy, but we're we're familiar now, or at least we should be familiar with the concept of expected goals and expected assists. And what expected possession value does is sort of take that to the next level. And basically, it's a sort of live analysis that shows how every single action that takes place during a game affects the probability of a goal being scored for one team or the other. So it's a constant data stream that will show you a spike. So, you know, the right winger crosses from it crosses into the box to the centre forward who's six yards out, you will get a massive spike in goal probability. But even taking it back, a throw in just inside, you know, your defensive half goes back to the centre back, that that will have some sort of effect on on the graph or however it's presented visually. Um, and as Duncan was saying, it, it's it's, it will enable teams to make decisions live. They'll be able to look at how their team are playing and look at the data, and they'll see the areas where they're dangerous, the areas where the opposition are dangerous. They'll be able to react to it in real time. Um, and I think that's probably what, what the future of, of data analysis holds uh, in the sort of immediate short term. It's been very interesting actually seeing how humans can be affected by data over the last decade. I mean, in the last six seasons in, in the Premier League, the average distance of a shot has gone down each season, so it's getting closer and closer. People are taking fewer and fewer long shots. Now, that's ironic given that Manchester City essentially won the league with a Vincent Company screamer, which, <laughs> but you know, these, these things will happen. But generally, teams will, you know, don't shoot from long range as much as they used to, and that is purely a, a data-led decision. Um, and I think we'll see more of that, as Tom says, as the, as the next decade progresses. Do you think that um, with such an emphasis coming on data, do you think that will mean that the way coaches are educated will be far more uniform in the future if they're sort of being directed towards looking at running through 20,000 different scenarios every time they're sort of thinking about their tactics. Yeah, I, I think the modern coach will have to be data literate. Um, and I think I think a lot of the, the consequences of, of data analysis growing in importance will just filter down through the sport organically because ultimately, every manager in the game is trying to 
copy the guys who are at the top and if they are um, if they are data literate and, and they're doing things that are sort of in sync with what their analysis are telling them that that will lead to certain types of football that will then be sort of you know kind of like copy I mean you take Pep Guardiola as one example he's not a big data nut he's all about video analysis in the sort of finest Marcelo Bielsa traditions um, but when you look at the way that Manchester City play um, and taking goals like Vincent Kompany's out of the equation and the odd Raheem Sterling curler that signature Man City goal is the low cross from the winger that's tapped in at the back post by someone inside the six yard box and if it's not him then there's three other guys following up and it just makes an awful lot of sense it's about eliminating um, risk from your shooting and it's about putting players in the best possible position to, to score a goal um, and an awful an awful lot is, is kind of common sense in a way mm. closer you are to the goal the further the goalkeeper is out of your way that the higher your chances of scoring so um, yeah I think on the one hand data literate coaches will have an impact on, on other coaches in the game but also just you know good practice will will just sort of filter down as it always has done yeah and I mean the history of football is is finding a competitive advantage over your opponents now that could be Herbert Chapman in the in the 30s you know adapting to the new offside law quicker than anyone else or it could be data now so once everyone has data then it doesn't mean everyone's going to be equal there's going to be guys who are better at finding solutions to the to football um, and that will always change and I think that is why we're never going to get to a point where a good manager is superseded by technology because you still need a, someone to implement that and, and you know make it work. Do you think we'll be uh, with the potential impact of this technology uh, and data analytics are we taking one step closer to um, some type of uh, financial capping of teams to stop um, the richest teams uh, engaging with this technology to give themselves a competitive edge that smaller teams can't do? That's, I guess, a big question, not just from technology, but generally, you know, um, that's the big kind of irony, really. You look at American sport and it's a lot more democratic than, mm. than European football, particularly. Um, you know, where, where football goes in the next decade, I mean, you know, there's talk of World Football League and, and things like that, you know, they're, they're trying to ramp up the Club World Cup as well, so, you know, it, that is a kind of huge question for the game, really, you know, competitiveness, you know, the people, the reason people love the latter stages of the Champions League now is because it is essentially eight huge clubs going head-to-head, -head. you know, some will have a slight advantage, but not massive, mm. um, you know, that, the ties last season, particularly in the quarterfinals and semi-finals, were kind of just astounding, and, and that that's what people want from from football, from all sport, really. But you know, it's very difficult to kind of find that perfect balance. I mean, we've spoken about managers. We've mentioned Marcelo Bielsa, Sam Allardyce. One manager who's been quite vocal about technology in football is Arsene Wenger, and he, in a press conference, said that he believes that substitutions or a manager's decisions could actually be impacted to by social media. What do you think the role of social media is going to be on, in football in the future? Well, I'm not sure that would work that well. I mean, social, you know, social media is huge in football. I mean, it's changed how we watch it, how we experience it. Certainly changed how I work. Um, you know, you kind of react often to what people are talking about, and you know, you could argue that VAR is, you know, a direct kind of lineage from social media in some senses because people have relentlessly overanalyzed stuff now. Um, compared to what they did maybe 10, 20 years ago. So I think there will be a role for it, but I, I can't see clubs or managers really, you know. I mean, there was obviously a few examples 
um, Ebb's fleet had a had a system like that, and it, they invariably end in acrimony and infighting. Well, there's the French club who you guys mentioned when we were sort of preparing for this show, Avant-Garde Canets, who sort of launched this new scheme where um, their fans slash members um, vote on every decision relating to the team, team selection, substitutions, um, and the management team just have to carry out their wishes and it would appear that they've actually had quite a lot of success despite it obviously being a quite weird way of doing things but the French Football Federation sticklers for doing things the right way as as ever as all big French institutions <laughs> is um, decided they didn't like it and ruled against it in January and I was reading I just doing a bit of research yesterday and I think Avant-Garde Canes appealed against the FFF ruling and the FFF have doubled down and said that no we can't have this so that's another another football social media experiment that's hit the skids possibly they saw Piers Morgan dictating <laughs> yeah. Arsenal's decisions and thought we can't be having that yeah yeah a nightmarish vision so to wrap it up is there a moment in football history that you wish was subject to the same technology that we have today um, right September 1977 Anfield Wales versus Scotland in a pivotal World Cup qualifier. Um, There's about 12 minutes remaining. A throw goes into the Welsh box. Joe Jordan, Scotland centre forward, clearly punches the ball into the air. Referee blows his whistle. Awards a penalty to Scotland, which is scored. A few minutes later, Kenny Dalglish heads in the second. Scotland go off to the World Cup in Argentina. Wales stay at home. The wait to reach the World Cup ticks on um, so that, that's one burning injustice although having said that I covered um, Wales's tournament at Euro 2016 when they made their long awaited return to a major tournament for the first time since the 1958 World Cup so had Wales qualified for 78 it, 2016 wouldn't have been quite so special so I'm a little bit on the fence with that one yeah I mean similarly on an international uh, front and I mean this is possibly goal line technology more than VAR but I think 1966 England if England hadn't won the World Cup possibly justly um, I think we'd have had a very different kind of progression of English football because it would have been a, another wake up call after the Hungary games in the 50s and I think maybe we wouldn't have had another 20 years of the kind of Charles Reap, Charles Hughes functional kind of ethos axis of, of evil yeah that basically shaped how English football went for a long time and we were only really only really now getting over that um, and it, you know England is a kind of quite anti-intellectual country in a lot of ways but you know in football terms that really did set us back a, a long way and possibly losing that World Cup might have won us a couple more in the interim very sobering for Tom Duncan thanks for joining us on the show where can listeners find you on the web um, so I'm at Tom W Football on various social media platforms. Similarly, I'm at Oily Sailor, which is a long story, mainly around a Wickham message board. But um, yeah, on on big, uh, yeah social networks as well. Awesome. Thanks both, uh, and thanks to you for listening to Sideload. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and if you want to get in touch, send an email to sideload at edelman.com. See you next time, and enjoy the season. <laughs>